monks are supposed to despise uh, worldly honor and ambition, but I have to admit, it's long been my uh, ambition to give a Friday night lecture at TAC, <laughs> and I'm, I'm deeply sensible of the honor. The college's newsletter often interviews alumni um, who explain how the education they began here has helped them in their professional lives. You know, the sort of thing, the critical thinking I learned at the college has helped me so much in my career as a management consultant. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think these, no offense to these people, I, uh, <laughs> I'm sure they realize themselves that there's something comical about praising a liberal education for its utility and servile pursuits. <laughs> Nevertheless, I want to begin by imitating them and saying that the college has helped me uh, in my life as a monk. Um, the, the rule of St. Benedict, according to which I supposedly live, uh, <laughs> is a rule for living a life of discipleship. And in the prologue to the rule, St. Benedict says, um, to speak and to teach becomes the master. To be silent and to listen beseems the disciple. Superficially considered, of course, TAC doesn't teach you to be silent and to listen. Um, TAC students are talking all day long. But in a deeper sense, TAC does teach discipleship. It teaches you uh, to silence the common opinions of our time and to listen to St. Thomas, the teacher of Thomas Aquinas College. Uh, Marcus Berquist, one of the founders of this college, my godfather, he gave a Friday night lecture here in 1996 called Learning and Discipleship. And he says there that TUC is nearly unique in that it defines itself by discipleship. It's discipleship to St. Thomas. But he goes on to say that because St. Thomas is by every sign a philosophical disciple of Aristotle, we define ourselves by discipleship to Aristotle also. And in this, TAC is very nearly unique. There, I don't think there's any other college that defines itself by discipleship to Aristotle. There was, of course, a time when Christendom uh, all used Aristotle as the main text of instruction, but that time has passed. And TSC gives careful consideration to the reasons why that time has passed. The juniors read the great thinkers of the scientific revolution who rejected Aristotle, Bacon, Galileo, Descartes, and Newton, um, and they examine the case. Why was it that Aristotle was abandoned? Uh, and they come to see, or s some of them come to see, that the case is not as strong as is often supposed, that in fact the case fails. And they're led, therefore, to see that the college is justified in defining itself by discipleship to Aristotle. Today I want to speak about a writer who uh, lived before Bacon uh, and who decades before Bacon was born gave a very powerful case 
against Aristotle, namely Martin Luther. Um, I'm very glad that my classmate Caleb Coho is here today. Uh, he, when we were students, um, he wrote an essay about why the college should add Luther to the program and organized a seminar on Luther. Um, and I'm glad to hear now that the college has in fact added Luther to the program. In fact, the very text on the liberty of the Christian that we read at that, at that uh, seminar. And I want to dedicate this lecture to you, Caleb, and to Roy Coates, our mutual friend who also helped organize that seminar. I want to look, though, at uh, an objection, well, a, a point in Luther that doesn't come out so clearly in that text that's now read here, but that comes out more clearly in other texts, namely uh, his main objection to Aristotle. I think it's a very uh, profound objection, and it's worth considering very carefully. So I will look first at uh, Luther's formulation of his rejection of Aristotle, and then I will defend Aristotle against Luther. And then I will talk a little bit about uh, what I think the sources of Luther's misunderstanding of Aristotle are. And finally, I'll talk about whether St. Thomas is really, as Mr. Berkeley said, a disciple of Aristotle or not. In his letter to the Christian nobility of the German nation in 1520, Luther launches a violent attack on the universities of his time because in them, quote, the blind heathen teacher Aristotle rules far more than Christ. He goes on to say that Aristotle's teaching is both false and unintelligible. Quote now from the letter to the German nobility. Nothing can be learned from Aristotle, either about nature or the spirit. Moreover, nobody has yet understood him, and many souls have been burdened with fruitless labor and study at the cost of much precious time. It grieves me to the quick that this damned, arrogant, villainous heathen has deluded and made fools of so many of the best Christians with his misleading writings. God has sent him as a plague upon us on account of our sins. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure many, many freshmen uh, today who are struggling through the posterior analytics are saying, <laughs> yes, true, well said, Luther. <laughs> Get this damned heathen out of our lives. Uh, but uh, Luther actually does see some utility in the posterior analytics and in the other logical writings. His, what he hates are the, the principal philosophical works of Aristotle. The physics, the metaphysics, the de anima, and the ethics, which he thinks should be completely discarded from uh, university education. He emphasizes that he had himself studied Aristotle deeply and understood him better than the most famous scholastic theologians, so that his opinion is not really comparable uh, to a TSC freshman's. <laughs> Quote, again from the letter to the German nobility, No one can accuse me of overstating the case or of condemning what I do not understand. I know what I am talking about. I know my Aristotle as well as you or the likes of you. 
I have lectured on him and have been lectured at on him, and I understand him better than St. Thomas or Duns Scotus did. I can boast about this without arrogance, and if necessary, I can prove it. Now, the work of Aristotle that offends Luther the most is the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics. Quote, his ethics is the worst of all books. It flatly opposes divine grace and all Christian virtues. So what, <clears throat> what does Luther mean by saying that the ethics denies divine grace or opposes divine grace and all Christian virtues. Two years earlier in the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518, Luther had defended a thesis contrasting human and divine love. Whereas human love comes into being through that which is pleasing to it, the divine love is not caused by what pleases it, but rather it makes that which it loves pleasing. This thesis is in itself not surprising. St. Thomas uh, proves exactly the same thesis. But for St. Thomas, this difference between human and divine love is not blameworthy. It is suitable to uh, humans as creatures that their love be caused by the attraction of the good. For Luther, it is blameworthy. The moved character of human love is perverse. Quote now from uh, the Heidelberg Disputation. This is the first quote on your handouts. Human love comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. For the object of love is its cause. Assuming, according to Aristotle, that each power of the soul is passive and material and active only in receiving something. Thus, it is also demonstrated that Aristotle's philosophy is contrary to theology, since in all things it seeks those things that are its own and receives rather than bestows something good. The power of the soul in which love is principally found, namely the will, is passive and receptive in this sense. It is moved by the attractive power of the good pleasing to it. It tends, in other words, towards happiness. And for Luther, this implies that the movement of the will is self-centered. It seeks those things which are its own. This is, for Luther, the very definition of sin. Luther is not disagreeing with Aristotle about, human, about how human beings de facto act. Their wills are, in fact, moved by the attraction of the good. But he thinks that Aristotle is here describing human nature as corrupted and depraved by original sin. In, Lu in Luther's view, the scholastic theologians have made the fatal error of taking Aristotle's account of fallen nature as normative, as though it expressed nature as originally created by God. Grace, on this scholastic view, would presuppose, heal, elevate, and perfect nature. 
But this is to neglect the fact that fallen nature is essentially depraved and perverse. In his disputation against scholastic theology, Luther had written, man is by nature unable to want God to be God. Indeed, he himself wants to be God and does not want God to be God. This is by nature, that is by fallen, depraved nature. Since everything that man does, he does in order to perfect himself, in order to receive some good perfective of the faculties of the soul, he is himself the final end of all that he seeks. In a sermon preached in 1521, Luther argues that if man seeks reward from God and flees punishment, then he is not really seeking God for God's own sake. Quote, for why a man does something, that is his God. If the why, the final cause of a man's action, is the reward of eternal happiness that he wants for himself, then his final goal is really himself. He is his own God. Therefore, Luther sees any attempt to seek salvation through meritorious works as necessarily idolatrous. Scholastic theology, insofar as it understood the grace of God as elevating and perfecting man's natural desire for happiness, by enabling man to hope for the beatific vision of God, falsified the gospel. This is what Luther calls the theology of glory, which has learned from Aristotle, quote, that lovable things are to be loved and delights in self-perfective activity. And he contrasts it with his own theology, which he calls the theology of the cross, which delights in self-destructive suffering. What is true of the will is true mutatis mutandis of the other powers of the soul as well. Thus the intellect, insofar as it is passive with regard to its object and can only know what actually is, is perverse and sinful. Uh, quote, again from the Heidelberg Disputation. For the object of the intellect cannot by nature be that which is nothing, that is, the poor and needy person, but only that of a true and good being. Therefore, it judges according to appearances, is a respecter of persons, and judges according to that which can be seen, etc., as the Lutheran theologian Rochus Leonhardt summarizes Luther's position, quote, God's grace does not correct the direction of our striving for perfection. It unmasks the sinfulness of that striving, end quote. I want to point out one more aspect of the young Luther's position that comes out particularly strongly in his lectures on Romans. Uh, delivered even before the start of the Reformation. Here, Luther interprets St. Paul's saying that he could have wished even to be cut off from Christ himself for the sake of his brothers, Romans 9.3, to mean that the true love of God implies, quote, utter self-hatred with no thought of one's own advantage, neither here 
nor in the life to come. And in explicating St. Paul's contrast between the prudence of the flesh and the prudence of the spirit, Romans 8, 6, he explains this opposition by a reference to the common good. The prudence of the flesh seeks its own happiness, its private good. But the prudence of the spirit seeks the common good. Quote, now from the lecture on Romans, this is uh, the second text on the handout. The prudence of the flesh chooses what is to selfish advantage, and it avoids what is harmful to the self. Moreover, it rejects the common good and chooses what harms the common spirit. It enjoys only itself and uses everyone else, even God. It seeks itself and its own interests in everything. It brings it about that man is finally and ultimately concerned only with himself. This is the idolatry that determines all he does, feels, undertakes, thinks, and speaks. Good is only what is good for him, and bad only what is bad for him. The prudence of the spirit chooses the common good and seeks to avoid what can harm the common life. It rejects self-interest and chooses what is disadvantageous to the self. For it directs the love that seeks not its own, 1 Corinthians 13.5, but that which belongs to God and all his creatures. It regards as good only what is good to God and everyone, and as evil what is evil to God and everyone. End quote. Luther, in other words, sees a strong opposition between seeking one's own good and seeking the common good. And to seek happiness is to seek one's own good and subordinate the common good and even God himself to oneself. So Luther rejects Aristotle's teleological understanding of the soul and its powers and the ethics based on that teleological understanding because he sees such an understanding as essentially self-directed. That is, he rejects it as being the way one ought to be. He accepts it as being a description of the way we actually are. And I want to reply to Luther's objection to Aristotelianism, and I will do this by considering three Aristotelian principles, which rightly understood show that Aristotle's philosophy is not self-centered in Luther's sense. A, the good is in things. B, the honorable good is naturally more loved than the act whereby we attain to it. And C, the common good is naturally more loved than the private good. So first, the good is in things. Our first notion of the good is that which all things desire. The late Dwayne Berquist, a brother of Marcus Berquist, manifests this definition by having us imagine asking a little boy, what is good? And the boy answers, ice cream is good, pizza is good, movies are good, football is good, vacation is good. What do all these things have in common? They're all things that a little boy desires, that he wants. 
Now we can ask about this definition. Is it a definition of the good from the cause of the good? Or is it a definition of the good from its effects? That is, is it desire that makes something good? Or do we desire things because they are good? The first possibility has great initial plausibility. It seems that if someone wants something, then it is good for them. If so-and-so wants to live in Los Angeles, then it is good for them to live there. Someone else wants to live in San Francisco, that's good for them. But there are also reasons to doubt the idea that it is wanting something that makes it good. And here again, an example from Dwayne Berquist. Haven't we all had the experience of wanting something which we ourselves then admitted was not good? I wanted that last drink at the party, but afterwards I admit that it was not good for me. Um, I wanted to drive 100 miles per hour down the winding road, but uh, later on my hospital bed I admit that it was not good. Maybe I'm still not ready to admit that it was not good to steal those mattresses, but... <laughs> <laughs> In many cases, I do admit that what I wanted was not good. <laughs> but that would be impossible if wanting, if the, uh, wanting something was what made it good. If the definition of the good is that which all desire was a definition from the cause of good. Aristotle identifies the good with a cause, with the final cause. The end and the good are the same uh, in reality, but considered differently. The end is that for the sake of which, while the good is that which all desire. The more fundamental notion is good. The causality of the end is derived from the attractive power of the good. That is to say, when I define the good as that which all desire, I am defining it by an effect of its goodness. The intrinsic goodness of a thing causes desire. This is the Aristotelian teaching to which Luther is referring when he writes, human love comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. But Luther is mistaken about the implications of this teaching. In fact, the implication is really the reverse of what he thinks. If things were in themselves neither good nor bad, and were only called good because our desire, because of our desire, then to desire a thing would really be to make it a means to one's own activity or pleasure. That would be self-centered. And we can see that self-centeredness in the subjectivist and relativistic philosophies of our own day, which take precisely this view of the good. That the, the good is just what people happen to want. But since the good is in things, arousing our desire, it follows that in desiring something, we are really ordering ourselves to the good and not the good to ourselves. Second point, an honorable good is naturally loved more than the act whereby we attain to it. That we order ourselves to the good and not vice versa is strictly speaking true not of useful and pleasant goods, but only of good in the full sense, 
what Aristotle calls the noble good and St. Thomas the honorable good, bonum honestum. Good such as friendship, wisdom, justice, that are willed for their own sake. Aristotle uses this distinction to, to distinguish different kinds of goods, but St. Thomas shows that in every desire for the good, something analogous to all three kinds uh, are involved. When we consider a good that we desire, we can distinguish uh, three objects of desire. The means used for attaining the thing, which corresponds to the useful good. The thing itself, uh, which corresponds to the honorable good. And the pleasure or delight that arises from the attainment of the thing, which corresponds to the pleasurable good. If the good being sought is really a good in the full sense, then it is the primary object of desire among the three. That is, it is the thing itself that is primarily desired. The means are only chosen for its sake. And the pleasure that follows from it is entirely secondary with respect to the real end that is the good itself. St. Thomas also distinguishes a fourth object of desire. Looking at the good itself, he distinguishes between the good and the activity whereby I attain to the good. For example, between a truth known and my activity of knowing the truth, between a friend and the activities of friendship with a friend. In the movement of our will, these are not two separate objects. They are willed by a single act. But in thought, we can distinguish them. Here again, since the good is in things, the primary object of desire and love is the good object itself, and only secondarily the activity of attaining to that object. The real end is the object. Nevertheless, the attainment of the end can analogously be called the end. Thus, uh, St. Thomas writes, Happiness is called man's supreme good because it is the attainment or enjoyment of the supreme good. In her senior thesis here at the college, my mother put it like this, quote now from her senior thesis, which I just read, brilliant. Um, <laughs> to, act for the sake of, to act for the sake of happiness is not to order all things to oneself, but rather to order oneself to the good. Still, a doubt might remain. Luther could respond, this shows only that it is natural to love the supreme good more than one's own attainment of it in the order of concupiscence, in the order of desiring. The love of a desirable thing. But more important than the love of concupiscence is the love of friendship or benevolence. That is, the love of the person for whom one desires some good. Whenever you love something, you have uh, both kinds of loves are involved. A love of concupiscence towards the good that you are loving, that is a love of desiring, and a love of friendship or benevolence, of wishing well, towards the one for whom you desire this good. For example, your friend or yourself. So Luther could say, for whom does one desire God as the supreme good? 
Is it not for oneself? That is, maybe you do love God more than anything else, even your attainment of God, by a love of concupiscence. But by love of friendship, you really love only yourself. It's kind of strange to say that by friendship you love only yourself. Uh, but um, in a way, it's plausible. It is for yourself that you want the good that God is. And this brings us to the third principle. The common good is naturally more loved than the private good. In a question on whether man is bound to love God more than himself, St. Thomas raises an objection that reads like an anticipation of Luther. This is the third text on your handout from the uh, Secunda Secunde. One loves a thing insofar as it is one's own good. Now the reason for loving a thing is more loved than the thing itself which is loved for that reason. Therefore, man loves himself more than any other good loved by him Therefore, he does not love God more than himself. That's the objection. In his reply to the objection, text 4, Thomas refers to the relation of part and whole. The part does indeed love the good of the whole as becomes a part. Not, however, so as to order the good of the whole to itself, but rather so as to order itself to the good of the whole. Why does St. Thomas bring up part and whole here? Is God a whole of which man is a part? No, um, obviously not. Uh, but there is a kind of similitude here between the part-whole relation and our relation to God. God is the common good of his creation. In the body of the article, Thomas writes the following, text five. The fellowship of natural goods bestowed on us by God is the foundation of natural love in virtue of which not only man, so long as his nature remains unimpaired, loves God above all things and more than himself, but also every single creature each in its own way, that is either by an intellectual, that is, that's the angels, or by a rational, that's human beings, or by an animal, or at least by a natural love, natural here referring to non-living things, as stones do, for instance, and other things bereft of knowledge, because each part naturally loves the common good of the whole more than its own particular good. This is evidenced by its operation, since the principal inclination of each part is towards common action conducive to the good of the whole. It may also be seen in civic virtues, whereby sometimes the citizens suffer damage even to their own property and persons for the sake of the common good. Wherefore, much more is this realized with regard to the friendship of charity, which is based on the fellowship of the gifts of grace. Therefore, man ought out of charity to love God, who is the common good of all, more than himself, since happiness is in God, as in the universal and fountain principle of all who are able to have a share of that happiness. 
The good is that which each thing seeks insofar as it seeks its own perfection. But as Charles de Koning argued at great length in his brilliant uh, interpretation of Thomas on the primacy of the common good against the personalist, its own perfection does not mean only a thing's perfection as an individual, but rather a more universal perfection to which it is ordered. De Koning shows that Thomas distinguishes four levels of a thing's own perfection. The first level is the good of the individual as an individual. This is the good that an animal seeks when it seeks nourishment. The second level is the good of a thing that belongs to it on account of its species. This is the good that animals seek in reproduction. Is this really a thing's own perfection? the good of its species? Is it not the good of another? No, says de Koenig. And here's a quote from de Koenig. The singular animal prefers naturally, that is to say, in virtue of the inclination which is in it by nature, the good of its species to its individual good. For the good of the species is a greater good for the individual than its singular good. The context of the text to which de Koning is here referring is a passage where Thomas argues that a natural part always loves the whole more than itself. In natural things, Thomas argues, everything that belongs to something greater loves that greater to which it belongs. Thus, a part of the body naturally exposes itself for the sake of the whole body. Without deliberating, by natural instinct, a hand is raised to protect the body from a blow. And similarly, a virtuous citizen is willing to suffer death for the sake of his city. A part should always prefer the good of the whole to which it belongs to its good as a part. But part has several different meanings here. A hand is not a substance. It exists only as a part. A citizen, on the other hand, is not only a part. He also has a whole substance with a private good all of its own. And part has yet a third meaning when applied to an individual with respect to a species. And yet Thomas claims that in all of these cases of part, the good of the whole is more desirable for the part itself than its own good as a part. The third level discussed by de Koning is the perfection that belongs to a thing on account of its genus. What is meant is the good of equivocal causes. That is, of causes that cause something of a different species from themselves. The perfection of an effect is found in its equivocal cause, but in a more eminent mode. In Aristotelian physics, for example, the heavenly bodies are the equivocal causes of natural forms, and any perfection found in sublunary things is found in a more eminent way in the things that are above. The highest equivocal cause is where the fourth level of a thing's own perfection is found, namely God himself, who caused all things but entirely transcends them. God is each creature's own perfection, his own good, on an account of the likeness 
that exists between the effects and their cause. Every perfection found in created things is a reflection of the perfection of God. And therefore, there is an analogy and similitude between God and creatures. This is the key to understanding why a thing's own perfection is found more in the common good than in its private good. Creatures are not parts of their creator. And yet they are ordered to their creator the way parts are ordered to a whole. The perfection that we have as creatures is a participation in God's perfection. To participate is to take part in something without removing a part from it. My reflection in the mirror participates in my appearance without depriving me of my appearance. God obviously does not have parts. But creatures share, it, share in his perfectly simple and unified essence in an incomplete way, that is, in a partial way. Therefore, St. Thomas can consider the love of creatures for the creator as the love of parts for a whole. Quote, uh, text 6. Consequently, since God is the universal good, and this contains the good of man and angel and all creatures, because every creature in regard to its entire being naturally belongs to God, it follows that from natural love, angel and man alike love God before themselves and with a greater love. Otherwise, if either of them loved self more than God, it would follow that natural love would be perverse and that it would not be perfected but destroyed by charity. End quote. That's there at the end you have Luther's position. Natural love is perverse and it is destroyed by charity. Each creature belongs to God on account of what it is. That means that each creature is for the sake of God, the way a part of a substance is for the sake of the whole substance. Created perfection just is participation in and imitation of the divine perfection. Text 7. The perfection of each and every effect consists in this, that it is made like to its cause, for that which according to its nature is something generated is then perfect when it reaches the likeness of its generator. Artifacts are likewise made perfect when they achieve the form of the art. The perfection that each creature desires consists in an ever greater likeness to the creator. And this means that the perfection that they desire only ever exists in a secondary way in themselves. It exists fully only in God. To love one's own perfection means to love God more than oneself. This is a self-centered love, only in the sense that it is centered on the good in whom one participates. God is, as it were, the true self of his creatures. But in another sense, it is a thoroughly ecstatic love, in which one transcends oneself toward a good infinitely better than one's own individuality, a beloved to whom 
one can give oneself without any reserve. We see, therefore, that Luther's objection fails. The teleological nature of the powers of the human soul does not mean that we are self-directed. On the contrary, it means that we are directed by them towards God. So why did Luther misunderstand the implications uh, of the nature of human love? I think there was an obstacle that prevented him from seeing the true implications of Aristotelianism. And it rose, arose out of controversies about the nature of the will in the medieval universities. Mr. Berquist used to apply Heraclitus's saying about war being the father of all to the life of the mind. Without contradiction, objection, and counter-argument, it is very difficult for anyone to advance beyond his original indistinct view of things to a firmer and clearer understanding, he would say. Nevertheless, although I think that's true, there's also uh, the fact that controversy and the heat of polemics can have the effect of obscuring the truth. Not all 13th century Aristotelians uh, agreed with Thomas's reading of the implications of a teleological understanding of the will. Uh, Sujet of Brabant, for example, who was a master at the arts faculty in Paris, uh, who had several disagreements with St. Thomas, he held that it is impossible to love the common good more than oneself. And in reaction to these Aristotelians in Paris, a movement began which we now call voluntarism. It's called voluntarism because it was developed first out of a concern for the freedom of the will. And this concern led the voluntarists to attack the Aristotelian account of the will as rational appetite, which we now call the intellectualist view of the will. They thought that the intellectualist, intellectualist account made the will too passive and therefore obscured important Christian truths about culpability and merit. A key early figure in the development of voluntarism was the Franciscan theologian Peter of John Olivi. Uh, Olivi explains his concern as follows, text 8. Therefore, the first thing in which Catholics differ from certain pagans and Saracens, namely that free acts are totally produced by the will, or that free choice or the will, insofar as it is free, is totally an active power, should necessarily be maintained, both according to the Catholic faith and according to right reason. For, as is evident from the preceding question, it is necessary that free choice may have the ratio of a first mover, so that it is able to push and move and pull back itself and other powers and active virtues subject to it. And this not only when nothing is pushing it to the contrary, but also when there is something inclining to the contrary. Olivier's concern was taken up by one of the most influential and famous Franciscan theologians, Blessed John Duns Scotus. Unlike Olivier, Scotus was hesitant to completely abandon Aristotelian psychology, 
and with considerable subtlety, he worked out a sort of compromise between activity and passivity in the will. Scotus's key move is the positing of two inclinations in the will. Borrowing terms from St. Anselm, Scotus calls these inclinations affection for advantage, affectio comodi, and affection for justice, affectio justitiae, or sometimes affectio justi. The affection for advantage is the will's natural inclination towards happiness. The affection for justice, on the other hand, is the freedom that the will has to obey the objective dictates of right reason and the commands of God without any reference to the self. Unlike Luther, Scotus does not think that the desire for happiness is necessarily sinful, but he does think that it has to be moderated by the affection for justice to keep it in accordance with right reason. Scotus explicates this in discussing the sin of Lucifer, which he sees as a sin of immoderate affection for advantage, uh, text 9. Now imagine, in keeping with Anselm's thought experience in On the Fall of the Devil, that there is an angel who has only the affection for the advantageous and not the affection for justice. That is, an angel having intellectual appetite merely as such and not as free. Such an angel would not be able not to will advantageous things or even not to will them supremely nor would this willing be imputed to the angel as a sin, since that appetite would be related to its associated cognitive power as the visual appetite is in fact related to vision. It would necessarily follow what is shown by its cognitive power and its own inclination to the best thing shown to it by that power, since it would not have the wherewithal to moderate itself. So that affection for justice which is the first controller of the affection for the advantageous, both as to the fact that the will need not actually desire that to which the affection for the advantageous inclines it, and as to the fact that it need not desire it supremely, that affection for justice, I say, is the will's innate freedom because it is the first controller of the affection for the advantageous. So Scotus argues that the natural inclination to one's own happiness is not able to love the good for its own sake. This only becomes possible through the affection for justice. Text 10. As for the claim that one cannot fail to will advantageous things, I respond that the good angels were neither able nor willing to will against happiness for themselves, but they did not will happiness for themselves more then they willed God's well-being for God's sake. Rather, they willed their own happiness less, because thanks to their freedom, they were able to moderate that willing in that way. Now, you might object that if that's true, they were really desiring happiness for themselves, and the, they weren't really desiring happiness for themselves in the right way. They were merely moderating that desire in the right way. I reply, that having a perfect act of desiring a good for oneself so that through that act the object is loved more for its own sake comes from the affection for justice. So the affection for advantage, the desire for happiness, that loves the good for your sake. But it's through this other inclination of the will that you can 
love things for their own sake. Now, Scotus explicitly raises the position that in loving a good by natural inclination, a person loves the good in itself more than himself as the one for whom he loves the good. But he rejects this position. Text 11. Granted, among things that are desired for the sake of the one loving, happiness is desired the most. But it is not desired the most. It is not loved the most, excuse me. Rather, the one for whose sake happiness is desired is loved the most, just as an end is loved more than the things that are for the end. So I love myself, the one for whom I love happiness, by the affection of, for the advantageous, more than I love objective happiness, the object in which happiness is found. Scotus also considers the argument uh, about part and whole that we just saw in St. Thomas. But again, he rejects the argument. Text 12. The examples don't show what they are meant to show. They show only that the whole loves its own good or that of its more important parts more than it loves the good of a less important part. The hand does not put itself in the way of harm for the sake of the whole body as a result of the hand's own appetite. Rather, the human being who has these parts, one more important and another less important, puts the less important part, which he can lose, without endangering the whole, in the way of harm, in order to save the whole and the other part, whose loss would mean the complete destruction of the whole. And so what you can conclude on this point is that God loves the well-being of the universe, or even his own well-being, more than the well-being of any one part. But there is no basis to conclude that any creature loves God's being or the being of the universe more than the creature's own being. Just as in those examples, the part would, if left to itself, that is, considered only in terms of its own inclination, never put itself at risk of non-being for the sake of another. The analogy fails in another respect as well. Suppose it were true, as the examples assume, that these parts are something that really belong to the whole and that by saving the whole they save themselves because they have being in the whole. Creatures are not parts in that way. They do not belong to God in the sense that God has them as a part, though they do belong to God as his effect or as participating in God. According to the great Lutheran theologian Karl Hull, quote, no one before Luther had so worked out the contrast between morality and happiness, end quote. But in Scotus, we do already see the beginning of such a contrast. Scotus does not condemn the inclination to happiness, but nor does he found morality on it. Morality is founded rather on the moderation of that inclination through an impersonal, non-teleological inclination to justice. Scotus's voluntarism was carried even further by another Franciscan, William of Ockham. Ockham was particularly important to Luther because many of Luther's own teachers were Ockhamists. Contrary to what certain Thomist polemicists have claimed, um, Ockham did not deny that there is an objective hierarchy of goods, perfections, in things. Nor did he even deny that the good in things exercises a certain attraction on the will. But he did deny that the attraction of the good is a cause or even a necessary condition for willing. 
The attraction of the good does make willing easier or willing against more difficult, but the will remains so free that it can always act against such attractions. The will can will evil as evil, and misery under the very ratio of misery. And it can will against good as good, and will against happiness as happiness. Occam does thus separate the notion of the good from the notion of the final cause. The will is able to make anything its final cause, regardless of whether it considers the thing as good or not. Um, text 13. The causality of the end is nothing other than its being effectively loved and desired, so that what is loved is affected. He thus gives the created will a kind of godlike freedom. Its love is not caused by what pleases it. Rather, it makes that which, it's, what, which it loves pleasing. A good rational creature will, according to Occam, exercise this freedom in accordance with right reason. It will freely choose to follow the commands of the supremely great God. Such a decision will be an act of purely disinterested love. As one Occam scholar, Marilyn McCord Adams, puts it, the liberty of indifference allows God and rational creatures to be assimilated in performing mirroring acts of self-transcendent love. Luther rejects this teaching of Occam on the liberty of the will. And one can phrase Luther's rejection as follows. If the will were good, it would be an Occamist will. If the will were good, maybe Adam in the Garden of Eden, he had an Occamist will. But since the will is depraved and corrupted by original sin, it is a passive Aristotelian will. Luther, in other words, rejects the voluntarist account of the will, but his view of the intellectualist alternative is darkened by the shadow of the voluntarist polemics against intellectualism. This is why he can only see an Aristotelian rational appetite as belonging to the perverse selfishness of our fallen nature. Um, we, however, have already seen that Aristotle's position does not entail selfishness. Or have we? There's one last point before I stop, and that is you could uh, raise the following position. The defense of the Aristotelian account of the will that I've offered is dependent on St. Thomas. And in explaining it, I've appealed to St. Thomas's doctrine of participation, which is a teaching that St. Thomas took chiefly from Platonist writers, such as St. Augustine and uh, Blessed Dionysius the Areopagite. The, um, so you could say, well, look, maybe... Luther's objection fails as applied to St. Thomas because St. Thomas is really a Platonist. Um, but it, it's fully justified as applied to Aristotle. And in fact, there are people who take this position. So Jacques Maritain, for example, he says, in Aristotle you have a kind of transcendental egoism which St. Thomas overcomes. And Rochus Leonhardt, very interesting Lutheran theologian who wrote a book defending St. Thomas against other Lutheran writers, his defense is, St. Thomas is not really Aristotelian. <laughs> um, but, 
Maritain, Leonhardt are in error. The three principles that I looked at are all taken directly from Aristotle. The good is in things, the good is loved more than the act of attaining to the good, and the common good is loved more than the private good. Consider Aristotle's formulation of that third point on the common good, text 14, um, from the beginning of the Ethics. For even if the good is the same for one person and for a city, that of the city appears to be greater, at least, and more complete, both to achieve and to preserve. For even if it is achieved for only one person, that is something to be satisfied with. But for a people and for cities, it is something more beautiful and more divine. Now, it is true that St. Thomas is able to give a fuller account of more divine by using uh, Platonic notions of participation. Nevertheless, Aristotle himself does teach that there is something divine in human life that has a similitude to the divine first cause. The love of the divine in human life is thus really primarily directed at the first cause. Aristotle is therefore much closer to the Platonists than is often thought. In De Anima 2.4, he is surely echoing Diotima in Plato's Symposium when he argues that everything that natural things do according to nature is for the sake of participating, metechosin, in the eternal and divine, and that therefore reproduction is the most natural of actions. To desire participating in the divine through the preservation of the species is not self-directed in Luther's sense, since the individual animal does not benefit from it qua individual. Thus, when Aristotle argues in Metaphysics 12 that the first mover is the final cause of all things, moving the entire universe by the attraction of goodness, and that this mover is self-thinking thought that is always in the best state that mortals are in only for a short time, we should understand this as meaning that the primary object of our love is the first mover himself and only our assimilation to him. It is in this light that we should understand Aristotle's discussion of the divine and the human in his treatment of contemplation. Consider the teaching on contemplation in Nicomachean Ethics 10, text 16. But such a life would be too high for man. For it is not insofar as he is man that he will live so, but insofar as something divine is present in him and by so much as this is superior to our composite nature, is its activity superior to that which is the exercise of the other kind of virtue. If intellect is divine, then in comparison with man, the life according to it is divine in comparison with human life. But we must not follow those who advise us being men to think of human things and being mortal of mortal things but must, so far as we can, make ourselves immortal and strain every nerve to live in accordance with the best thing in us. As mortal, we should not think of mortal things because the divine is more lovable to us than we are to ourselves. It is not primarily as human good that we love God, but as divine good. 
in which we mortals participate. In the Eudemian ethics, uh, Aristotle says the same thing in these words, text 17. And so it is with the theoretic faculty, for God is the end with a view to which prudence issues its commands. The word end is ambiguous and has been distinguished elsewhere, for God at least needs nothing. What choice, then, or possession of the natural goods, whether bodily goods, wealth, friends, or other things, will most produce the contemplation of God? That choice or possession is best. This is the noblest standard. But any that through deficiency or excess hinders one from the contemplation and service of God is bad. For Aristotle, therefore, as for St. Thomas, to love God as the end of human life is not to order God to ourselves, but to contemplate and serve him for his own sake. Although God has no need of us, nevertheless, it is fitting and right that we order ourselves to him. Thomas Aquinas College's discipleship to Aristotle is, therefore, justified. Thank you.